Hey folks, I'm Tom. KJ here. You've heard this before, but we're new and improved now, and so is the Dunlap Champions Club. It's back for another year. You know that. By now, if you have not been in there, I don't know what you've been doing, but we will remind you, this is always the best time to test drive. If you want to check it out, we have the spring game coming up April 18th, followed by a concert. Uh, good pricing to get in and see what you've been missing. A reserved chairback seat, access to indoor air-conditioned areas, always a good thing. All-inclusive food and soft drinks starting two hours before kickoff. Access, I love this part, to adult beverages and more. Funny that you would be the one to bring that up. Uh, the home schedule this year, obviously, when we get to the, the fall portion, uh, the, the meat of the actual football season, I guess I should say. Clemson and Florida are on the docket. Pitt coming to town for basically the first time since uh, since KJ played. Well, I guess shortly after you uh should we say retired? Finished. I, I wish finished. That's good. Finished. Anyway, uh, as far as the spring game goes, again, 5 o'clock kick on April 18th. And if you're a, a booster member already, a, a ticket holder in the Dunlap Champions Club, it's just 60 bucks to get in for that. Uh, if not, $80. But either way, uh, particularly if you're general public and have not sampled the Dunlap Champions Club, Champions Club it's the best way to do it. You Six, can schedule a private tour as well. So if you don't want to, if you want to buy after seeing, you can go in, take a good look, walk around, see what's going on. It's a big place, 20,000 square feet of space, uh, can handle up to 500 folks. If you've got other plans for other types of events that you want to schedule, it's worth the visit. 644-1830 is the number to call. Now, without further ado, Front Row Knowles. Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is Front Row Knowles with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener, online at ctf.nu. Now, here's Tom and Keith. Good day, everybody. Tom and KJ back with you again. Keith, I hope you had a safe and splendid Memorial Day weekend. You were at the beach, I presume? I was, I was. You know, Memorial Day is one of those holidays that you love having until you watch some of the shows that are on television and you contemplate what you're really celebrating. Uh, So it's a very kind of a mixed emotion for me thinking about uh, the folks that went before us that, uh, you know, defended our freedom and yet still trying to have a good time because I don't have to go to work that day. That's well said, Keith, and I think it's easy to lose sight of that. Obviously, a lot of people bring it up the day of and sort of in the 48 hours around it as we're doing right now. But there is a reason, uh, a pretty important reason that we get that day off. And maybe honor instead of celebrate is the better way to put that. But uh, but I agree. I, too, was uh, at the beach. It was nice to have a three-day weekend. It's good to be back at it. We're a week closer to football season, we think. Well, we certainly were a week closer, whether it's six years from now or four months from now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a two-part closer. We're closer to figuring out whether we're going to be closer or not. Maybe that's a a different way of saying it. I did find it intriguing as you look at the way this is unfolding, and we've talked about this for weeks now. Every state has different guidelines. Everybody's got – and those guidelines are based on differing results, hotspots here, not there, that sort of thing. But last week, and we discussed that the Osceola was one of the first with that story, that Florida State football players had been back in town since May 15th to self-isolate for two weeks, which allows FSU to start voluntary workouts on June 1st. But when you look at it, that puts them right at the front of the line. You can't be before June 1st. But now, I think it was Tuesday this week, Clemson announced June 8th is when they're starting. Oklahoma has said it'll be July 1 before they get to their voluntary workouts. And, of course, Lincoln Riley 
had been pretty outspoken and vocal about saying, hey, we need to wait, not hurry on this. But for whatever it's worth, FSU is at the front of the line on this. And to me, the way FSU has always set this up, really the second summer session is when typically the first-year players have come in and they acclimated on campus for a couple of classes and get familiar with it. It's not different than a high school senior who would arrive before the fall semester just because it's a little bit easier when campus isn't, isn't as crowded as what the fall looks like. Different circumstances this year with everything being virtual. But, again, for whatever it's worth, FSU will be at the front of that line. And I think uh, the date of June 24th, which I think is the start of uh, summer term C, as they call it, if I have the date correct, has kind of become the new everybody needs to have been here doing a little bit. And then, uh, if you will, phase two of the voluntary workouts begin uh, is kind of how I'm framing it when I've had those conversations with people. Jerry Kutz from the Osceola will join us next segment. He's got an in-depth piece on the Osceola.com right now that takes a look at what Doak Campbell Stadium might look like if you're only at, say, 25% occupancy or even less than that. He modeled it after the Miami Dolphins plan, which was for very few of their fans to be in attendance. And obviously, Seminole Boosters and FSU Athletics are looking at all different scenarios. But this this actually puts some numbers to it, and I, I'll let him better articulate exactly uh, what that deep dive looked like. But as we've talked about, Keith, to actually examine the details, it's not quite as simple as simply saying, okay, we'll play football and we'll kick off on September 5th. Not at all, but I, I will compliment and commend Florida State for a couple of things that have evidently been done that were very uh, foresightful, if that's the right word, but you know, going to the virtual tickets, going to tickets, via cell phones and those types of things obviously will allow for a conceptually speedier uh, entry into the stadium. Uh, you and I talked about off the air about, you know, how do you manage if, if somebody has four tickets and then they sell two of them on StubHub and those two people come in and they've not been informed of what all the new requirements are, how do you manage that? Someone mentioned to me that, you can have those electronic tickets be such that you can't transfer them. So there's even some controls that may be able to be put in there if they choose to, that can limit, you know, how those tickets go on the secondary market. The only thing I've read about, Jerry will get more into it because it's very well detailed in his article uh, talking about uh, Hard Rock Stadium is the ability to have the, the devices to allow people to self check when they get there versus having an attendant at the gate that has to physically or and or manually do something. But again, the mere fact that they've gone to the electronic version, I mean, can you imagine what this would be like if we still had paper tickets? When that announcement was made and it was before COVID-19 that FSU athletics made that announcement, not everybody was keen about it because there are those who like to collect the physical tickets and have quite the collection. And obviously it's a little different when you're printing out an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that's got a barcode on it and just some type that says FSU versus Sanford. Not quite the same feel to it, if you know what I'm saying. I think uh, the vast majority of those people will be very well pleased. And, and unfortunately, unfortunately, We'll have to uh, go to stamp collecting or something instead of tickets. 
That really, though, it's emblematic of the overall issue with athletics in general or any business, Keith. You're trying to figure out you got to drive more revenue. So where can you cut expenses? And that's something when you look at it, you're having that conversation and saying, I don't know what the dollar figure was. But part of the equation is not just the practicality, which is what you just described, but also what does it look like in the budget? And if we can save some dollars here and it's more practical and flexible, why wouldn't we do it? But it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be happy with it when you make that decision. Well, you know, and the one thing I've said all along, and I know you've echoed this, but I've been to the forefront of this. Is it, it's a wonderful, to me, a wonderful asset for Florida State to have someone like uh, David Colburn as the athletic director who has spent decades even, you know, m- mashing and, and turning the numbers uh, as he did in his previous life at state government uh, when he was chief of staff at the university and now as an athletic director, to find those nickels, dimes, and quarters because all of those are becoming ultra important in today's financial landscape as it relates to collegiate athletics. I think it's a good point because on the one hand, Keith, you could say, well, FSU was already having budget challenges on the athletic side, and boy, you wouldn't want to be dealing with this right now. But on the other hand, David Coburn's been looking at the budget with a fine-tooth comb since he got in that role two years ago, so he was further ahead. Not that every AD isn't looking at his or her budget, but I don't know that everybody had had uh, dived quite as deep as what David had had to do in the preceding two years. Well, let me just say this and try to be as politically correct as I can. Uh, the previous administration, I don't think, even knew how to spell budget. So we got that going for us. And that is Wildwood's version, just one D in Wildwood, of political correctness. Am I correct? Yes, sir. Jerry Kutz from the Osceola is uh, online, too. And as soon as I admit him to the Zoom room, he'll join this conversation and we'll explore it further. I do want to thank Matt Thompson, Madison Social, Townships, and Trolley. Continue to support your local businesses, folks. Yes, they can have 50% occupancy inside, but that doesn't mean that everybody is taking advantage of that. And that's obviously an individual decision. But if you're so inclined, I would encourage you to uh, support Matt as he has supported us or support your local businesses in general. We'll come back, turn the attention to what Doak might look like at partial capacity this year, which could be a reality when football season kicks off. Jerry Kutz is up next here on Front Row Knowles. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. Tom Block, Keith Jones with you. Hope you guys had a safe and happy holiday weekend, and appreciate you tuning in each and every week. In some respects, KJ, I say this every week, we have the same conversation. Are we going to kick off the football season on time? We try to bring different voices to the conversation, and we are slowly but surely getting more information each week. But we're proud to bring Jerry Kutz, the founder of the Osceola, to our, the airwaves and the Zoom waves right now. Jerry's been on before. Obviously, all Seminole fans know Jerry. How are you, sir? I'm great. Doing good. Excellent. Well, we, we appreciate it. And, uh, you know, you continue to write columns for the Osceola and 
uh, this this week you penned. I still use the term penned. I don't know if you do, uh, sure. as it's online, not in ink. But your column this week, the, the the title is "So What If Fans Can Attend Games? Then What?" And as Keith and I have described it, and I think this has been the conversation universally, except for those that are really behind closed doors that are making the sausage, so to speak. We, we talk about, well, it looks like maybe we can kick off on time, but most people aren't really sitting down and saying, okay, well, how are we going to filter people into the stadium? What's the restrooms going to look like? Are we going to serve concessions? Who's going to sit where? The conversations are not going as deep as what they have to, to make this a reality. So I'll stop there and let you jump in and, and go over the premise of your article. Well, exactly what you said there, Tom, is, uh, you know, having been on the other side of it, I've been in the seat that, uh, uh, the boosters and the ticket office find themselves in. And, you know, I worked with Ben Zierden and uh, Jack Chatham in the ticket office to figure out game day operations, how we're going to ticket games and how we're going to get them in the game. And so maybe I'm just particularly sensitive to that challenge. But I, I read an article that was written, actually, uh, let me back up. Tracy Marple and I had lunch at the new, you know, they've opened the University Center Club and it's fantastic to eat there. And so she pulled out this uh, PowerPoint that the Dolphins had put together and presented. And, and um, she shared it with me and it, it was very detailed. It got into sanitization. It got into parking, moving people from the parking lot into the stadium uh, where they would sit, um, getting them to the concession stand and back to the restroom, and then, you know, egress, how to get out of the stadium safely. And I can get into all the details, you know, I'll let you ask some questions. But I my takeaway from it, I got about halfway through the thing and I thought, gee, some people – are just they're just not going to be bothered with all that, and then um, and then I thought, you know, some people it may make them feel safe enough to come. And my final concluding thought on it is, it really wasn't written for me. <laughs> you know, it was really written, I think, for the local health board people, and for Governor Ron DeSantis and people like that. I think it's a very thoughtful approach to using socially distancing standards and still being safe and watch the game. And that's, that's the bottom line takeaway is the governor wants to play, I think. And um, we just have to find a protocol that makes it as safe as possible to play with the fans and the stands. And that's what I think their their proposal is. And, Jerry, I agree with you because uh, I, I think the first step is you've got to put together what would be a, a, the technical piece to get uh, the folks that are making the decision, i.e. the health officials and or the governor's office, to feel comfortable with what you're doing. But then you would rewrite that thing or prepare it a different way when you distributed it to the public. And in reading your article, uh, what ju- what jumped out at me is – you know, it's kind of like getting people in and out of an airplane these days. You know, after the 9-11, you know, you got to go through the TSA. You got to take a little longer. You got to do some things. You better be prepared for it. 
Know when to take your shoes off, take your belt off, take everything out of your pockets. Know when you get on the plane, boarding by zones, know how you get off of the plane. And uh, the way that gets communicated to the public will be different than probably what you saw in terms of words, usage, screens, you know, signs and those types of things. But, it, but it's a plan, and, and I think you're exactly right. There, there will be some people that will be nervous going regardless, but there will right. be other people that this becomes um, something that makes them comfortable coming to the stadium. Right. Yeah, I, Keith, I really think that's, you know, we're all masters of our own domain. <laughs> and, um, you know, if I'm 67, you know, fortunately I'm in great health. My wife has some immune uh, issues. And so for us to go to a football game, we're going to have to give it some thought, you know. Now, I, I may have to go to cover the game, um, and I, I'm going to look at what kind of space they're going to want me to cover it from, right? But I think everybody is going to make their own decision. And so the stadium operator, whether it's the Dolphins or it's my friends at Florida State, They've got to create a space that they feel comfortable is safe. And then they've got to communicate why, you know, you should come or why you should consider not coming. And if you love your customer, and we all do, um, it may be in, for some people, this is a good year to take a pass, right? And if now the Dolphins Stadium, if you noticed in the article, they took a 65,000 hard rock stadium and to do social distancing, it's about 12,500 people. So what what they did was they took now this is a proposal. I think it's still in the proposal form. They took their season ticket package and they cut it in half. So. 12,500 will get to go to four games and a different 12,500 will get to go to four other games. And it keeps their season ticket holders, all of them having a chance to come see their fins play um, safely. You extrapolated those numbers and you went to what that would look like for Doak. And it brings it to 17,000 just based on what the Dolphins model was. This is not something that, necessarily came from FSU athletics. What would 17,000 do in terms of FSU's ticket base and how they would take care of their season ticket holders, especially when you consider the dynamic of if you split the six home games, you'd have to split it where one group gets the Florida game and one group gets the Clemson. And that to me is going to make two groups that aren't happy. So I don't know that that's the way to go for FSU, but what did you find in looking at 17,000 if it was that could go to Dover? Um, I think the first thing you said, Tom, is the most important thing for our listeners to, to make note of. This is not Florida State's plan. This is the Dolphins' plan. And what I did was I, I climbed out on a limb and said, if Florida State were to consi consider a plan like this, I thought it would work, you know, if that's a direction they wanted to go. Um, there's other proposals out there that we can talk about a little bit, too. But FSU has, in the neighborhood of 30,000 season ticket holders, okay? I mean, uh, seats that are season tickets, 32, 34, somewhere in there. 
and they're only held by about eight or nine thousand people. Uh, you know, there's typically four seats in a, in a block, and so you you could, in theory, split it and get to just about every. You know, with 34,000, if you had, you get to pick Florida in two or Clemson in two, you could, you could cover all of the season ticket holders. Um, and I, and like I said before, I think you're going to find some people that just aren't going to be comfortable coming. One, one advantage FSU has is I think the Dolphins, they broke their stadium up into reserved seats that are socially distanced in groups of two, four, and six. And then the group would be socially distanced from the next group. FSU has some groups um, that have 10 to 16 seats in the group. So that would, you know, would help you because you have a little bit uh, bigger density when you have eight people than if you have two. And, um, and so that kind of helps. If that was the route FSU wanted to go. Jerry, I think one of the things that, that impressed me about the whole conversation, again, in the macro sense and staying out of the weeds, is basically you would say, look, we're going to go 25% occupancy. Well, that was phase one of opening up restaurants and retail and everything else. So we're not doing anything out of the ordinary. We're outdoors, but we're at 25% occupancy. FSU's listening right now because they could be told 25% or they could be told 50% or, you know, business as usual. And I think everybody is looking at these uh, hospitalizations is what the Dolphins used. You know, that's the real number that you have to be cognizant of because you don't want your hospitals to get full, right? So the more you test, the more positives you're going to get, you know? So what really matters is, you know, how many people are getting sick and how many people are being hospitalized. And I think that's where the governor and the county and local health people and John Frasher, that's what they got to be mindful of. If we don't see a lot of spikes the next couple of weeks, I think that's going to, you know, embolden decision makers. If we see a bunch of spikes, I think it'll it'll cause not only the decision makers to back off, but even the customer to say, whoa, wait a minute, you know, getting together in large groups is not a good idea. So, As we sit here right now, are you optimistic the season will start on time? Yeah, I think, I think that's, I mean, I didn't think that a couple of weeks ago. I, I was kind of an advocate for postponing the season because of the revenue you want to in athletics you know tv revenues 20 million for florida state and football about you know the fan in the stands is worth 35 million well if you're going to play at 25 percent capacity you're going to lose 75 percent of that 35 million maybe you know this wasn't specifically in your column but how will students be handled? Because students pay an activity fee that's rolled up into their tuition that covers admission to sporting events. 
Yeah. So wouldn't they have any yeah. 25% or what do you think the, what's your best guess on what that could look like? I, I, I don't want to venture a guess. I think that's kind of a sensitive area. If, if, as you said, Tom, um, our students pay an activities fee and that activities fee, um, some of that activities fee goes to the school of, you know, music and to our rec programs and all of that. And some of it goes to athletics and it's a sizable amount of money. And I'm not sure how they'll handle it. I think it could depend on how many students come back to campus, but by contract students get 16,000 tickets by contract. And so would you, if you said they could only get 4,000, would you then put them into a lottery for those 4,000 or would you divide it up and each student gets a certain game? You know, I, I, it's a tough one, and I don't. I have no knowledge. I, I will be purely speculating. But you're you're exactly right to raise that question. And another one of our subscribers asked the question: uh, How do you socially distance the band? You know, do you spread them out? Do you have fewer band? Is there no band? And you do it electronically. I mean, I would think you would want the band there in some shape some form and fashion. A lot of questions. We're starting to get some answers, but there's not real clarity yet. But uh, I know you'll be on finger on the pulse here as we count down to kickoff whenever that is. So thanks for joining us as always. I enjoyed it. And uh, for the listeners, I've got a thunderstorm coming down on my house. So uh, that probably accounts for some of them. It's been broken up. So thank you. Appreciate it. Jerry Kutz from the Osceola. We'll take a break, come back with more in Front Row Knowles right after this. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by the Osceola, dedicated to FSU sports and fan experiences. Sign up for a free trial at theosceola.com or call 833-FSU-NEWS. Back on Front Row Knowles, Tom and KJ with you. Thanks for hanging with us there. Thunderstorms in Tallahassee, imagine that. It's that time of year, Keith, and this is the Zoom world we're living in. Unfortunately, though, my connection is still good, and I can still see you. So for better or worse, it is what it is. Would you like for me to turn my video off? Is that what you're asking? That would be great, and I could return the favor as well. (laughs) Again, Jerry, to be clear, for those who tuned in and caught part of it, I think Jerry's right to add the disclaimer. That is not the FSU plan. That is Jerry taking the Miami Dolphins plan for Hard Rock Stadium and applying the same rules to it if it was Doak Campbell Stadium. So based on that conversation and reading the article on the Osceola.com, what concerns you or what resonated from when you first read through that article, Keith? Well, three things, three things jumped out at me. And the, again, this is speculation on, on, on KJ's part. Number one, the students. If the students are back and we are in session, and we are doing face-to-face, you don't have to isolate the students from each other. You just have to isolate the students from everyone else. 
So you could fill up that, uh, that section or those sections if we were back to face-to-face meetings and just, you know, social distance around them, so to speak, may be hard but doable. Number two, as he appropriately pointed out, at the NFL level, you're buying tickets in pairs or four or six. At the collegiate level, you're buying eight or 10 or 12. Well, you're not going to social distance those eight or 10 or 12, I wouldn't think. You would, you would put them together and, and isolate them from everyone else. And thirdly, the way you get in and out of the stadium, yeah, it would be a little bit of a hassle. Welcome to, to the new world. But you, you could say things like rows 60 through 80 enter. If it's a 1 o'clock kickoff, 60 through 80 enter at noon, and 40 through 60 enter at, you know, 1220, and 1 through 40 enter at quarter till or 20 till. Would it be inconvenient? Yes. But we may find, think about this, Tommy, we may find, just like I remember getting on airplanes when there weren't zones and everybody would just try to get up to the front to get on first, we may find that the way we end up doing this actually benefits us three, five, ten years down the road. I think there's just a lot more discussion and ideas. You know, you and I have talked about the fact off the air that, you know, you and I don't agree on on everything and and sometimes one of us will put out an idea that the other one will say well that's just silly or that just won't work or me normally telling you that's just dumb but the old adage of bad ideas lead to good ideas so you talk about something you experiment with something you think about something and even if you implement it you may change it game two game three game four there's just a lot of um moving parts that people above your and my pay grade will have an opportunity to to think about talk about and discuss that i'm i'm getting like jerry i'm getting much more optimistic about how this thing's going to be put together in terms of kicking off on time in a in a stadium that has more than just players in it I raised the questions about students and the activity fee, Keith. As you know, you're an adjunct instructor. It's been felt more by private institutions thus far where people are paying 50 and 60 grand worth of annual tuition and don't feel they're getting a comparable educational experience if they're at home learning remotely via Zoom. And so there's lawsuits out there and students suggesting they're not going to pay X when they're getting Y. It hasn't really hit the state institutions as much, although there is some out there. And frankly, FSU in Florida, if you look at lists, have about as low a tuition as any of the top universities in the country. So it it may be that it hits FSU in Florida further down the line. But that same argument could be made about, hey, I'm paying this activities fee, which gets me to A, B, and C. But the reality is you're not letting me into A. And so that question is going to come up, too. Agreed. And and if you get in front of that or you wait until you litigate it or something in between, uh, it'll work. I say it'll work itself out. I mean, we'll, we'll get resolution to that. It may not be by the time kickoff comes. The other thing about that, though, is the whole, and this is beyond, you know, again, mine and yours uh, pay grade, is, you know, do, how you deliver the instruction and should there be a lesser cost if you're doing it um, 
oh, what's called what the university calls OLD, online or distance learning, and as it relates to those activity fees. And again, I think those are just discussions that that President Thrasher and his folks are going to have to uh, look at and rely on. That um, you know are going to take a lot more information than we have right now. Some of the many questions that are out there as we think we're moving closer to college football season. So an announcement was made this week, Keith. This doesn't really mean anything, not a surprise, but by June 1st, you know the kickoff times for the first three games of the year. And earlier this week, the conferences, I guess on Tuesday, all in unison, they all announced the same thing, that collectively the conferences networks have agreed to an extent determining college football's early season game times beyond the standard June 1 deadline. These kick times and network designations will be announced at a later date as we all continue to prepare for the college football season. So on the one hand, we're continuing to prepare for the college football season. That's good. On the other hand, we don't know yet if we're going to beat Samford in 104-degree heat at 12 noon or in 98-degree heat at 7.30 p.m. Does that about sum it up? Well, I, I think it might be a little cooler if it's at 7, but maybe not much. <laughs> Did you find yourself – like me, I read that uh, little blurb that came out from the ACC, and I was reading it to make sure I didn't say that anything had been both postponed or canceled. Did, did you find yourself reading it the same well, way? That's how I'm reading all of now. these announcements. Yeah. Yeah, because there's, there's so many of them. The terms of that Samford contract came – oh, first of all, before before I get to that, let me let me go back to the point Jerry made. You know, we're, Jerry mentioned he may have to cover the game depending on how media are spaced out, and that's something too. And the way Florida State handles post game now, it's really a post game press conference. So I don't know that much would need to change there for the general media. They'd have to socially distance, but it would look like a press conference with the governor only, the football coach, and the players there, and you could be socially distant. I can tell you, it's going to change the post game procedures for the radio network where Gene sits a foot away from the head coach and does an interview after every game. And I sit a foot away from the players after every game and do a couple interviews that, that shit may have sailed for this year. And it may be that we're looking at different parameters based on uh, just the, the ramifications of this. Well, not to disagree with you, but to disagree with you, I think that goes back to one of the concepts that has been talked about that we haven't fleshed out and that is this concept of, of level one or level two or level three of the bubble. In other words, you treat the team and the trainers and the nutritionists and the managers and the assistant coaches and the graduate assistants all as one group, 130, 150, 180, however many of them there are. And you have pre procedures and protocols about how they – interact with each other because you can't have social distancing during a practice and you can't have social distancing during a segment meeting and you can't have social distancing if you're uh, adhering to a schedule relative to practice and film sessions as it relates to meals. So we call that bubble one. Maybe, maybe folks like me and you, i.e. the broadcast crew, the officials, uh, the, the guys that have the down markers, the ball boys or girls, whomever, they become bubble number two. And there's just certain things that we have to do in terms of temperature check and or testing that gain us access to the bubble one people. 
So they ascribe by a certain set of standards. The second group ascribed by another set of standards. And if there was a third group, they have a, a yet separate set of standards. But they're all coordinated so that you can achieve and do those things that you want to do. Um, I see that has a, a great potential, and I see that being a little bit of a way um, to uh, keep from having all of the uh, disruptions that may take place with Gene interviewing Mike and you interviewing coaches, or just you know the six or eight of us that are up in the booth together. You know, how are we going to social distance in that booth? That's not going to happen. So I think that's the process I'm interested in hearing and seeing about, and I think there are plenty of people that are talking about it and formulating it. Does that make sense? It makes sense, and the answer, like everything else right now, is we don't know. But it's something that will have to be – it's a bridge that will have to be crossed at some point, and maybe it'll get – maybe that bridge will be a lot lower and a lot shorter by the time we get there based on data and and, and the way this progresses. Here's what I was going to say previous to this, Keith, and um, I don't want to say you and I – when I've introduced it before, because I'm not sure I'm necessarily in favor. But here's the point I was going to make for this year. If you look at the last few years, because I, I looked up the figures, I think, in, in 2018, FSU paid, played Sanford, the one FCS opponent. The going rate for an FBS opponent like Louisiana Monroe is north of a million. And FCS, you're getting in the half million dollar range. And it was announced in the last week that Sanford this year, FSU's paying them 450 grand. If you look at the, the long-term impact of COVID-19 on any community, community, but like Tallahassee in general, at what point do you have the conversation and say, why don't Florida State and Florida A&M play a football game, which would help both schools and would help the community and would help attendance? And again, I'm not talking about this year, but I'm saying in future years, because the budget implications of this are going to extend for many years. Well, my initial reaction to that is it ain't going to happen. Uh, the disparity between the two programs in terms of resources and, um, you know, the type and caliber of athlete in terms of numbers, by no means am I being disrespectful of the fam relative to that, but in theory, Florida State will always have more four- or five-star recruits than an, an F, FCS-type school will have. I just think – I just think that's a, such a competitive disadvantage and you'd have to live with it because you're both in the same town that um, I, I don't, I don't see that happening, but yes, obviously the conversation needs to take place. I just don't think you're going to find an easy way to make that happen. Uh, if that makes sense. No, I think you're right on it. And you could list pros and cons on each side of the debate. I just think when you look at it, FAMU has played Florida. They've played Miami. FSU's brought in Delaware State. They bring in Samford. And out of that guarantee, I think, I don't know, but I think the guarantee, the school has to pay its travel costs out of the guarantee, I think. I don't think there's 450 plus we're paying your travel. I could be wrong on that. So the point is, if you're Samford and by the time you bust down here and feed them and stay in a hotel, maybe you're net 400 on that. And and FAMU could net more because they don't have the travel costs if you did that game in town. I'm just saying it's something when you look at how could – you just have to think differently in this age. And and I know the history of Florida State. I was at the last men's basketball game between FSU and FAMU way back in the Sam Cassell era. Matter of fact, that was I guess that was 1991 because it was shortly before the wine and cheese game at the Dean Dome. 
And the two schools have competed in other sports over the years, not all of them, but women's basketball, track, softball, volleyball for a while, but not so much in baseball, men's basketball, or, or football. I'm just suggesting you should, what you said. Probably ought to have the conversation at some point. Because, and this goes more to the bigger picture of how does travel change? You know, Are you still going to pay the same guarantees? I found it interesting that in the middle of this pandemic, a lot of future home-and-home home series have been announced between, I'm making this up, but Oklahoma and this school, and this school just agreed to pay Ball State $1.8 million. To me, it seemed like maybe they could wait another six months and see what, see if there's a football season this year before they get on the hook for that. But it hasn't seemed to slow down any momentum on signing those type of contracts. Well, I think that goes to the to the now long term thinking that you have to have in collegiate athletics relative back to the conversations we would have if coronavirus had never come around. That you know, can you really afford to play an FCS? game and and rules that if you play two of them only one of them count you know we need to get our attendance up so we need to have home and homes with Georgia and others and and so I I hope Tom that what we're dealing with in 2020 is such an aberration that we can get back to arguing about strength of schedule home schedule and we don't have to worry about minimum guarantees in order to make the budget work. Uh, We'll just have to wait and see if that happens. I'm going to shift focus here, Keith, because normally this is list season when we're in the off season. Who's got the top returning offensive line and who's got the best coaching staff, all those kind of debates. Well, ESPN's got an article out of the top 25 teams all time to not win a national title. And to interrupt you, who was at number 25? Who was at number 25? I don't think I looked at 25, but one of your teams is on the list. 1980 was number 25. So you just killed a good tease because we, I was going to tease that and come back with it, but you just blew it out of the water. But anyway, listeners, even though you know what we're going to talk about precisely when we come back, we'll do it after this here on Front Row Knowles. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Back on Front Row Knowles, Tom and KJ with you. Keith's the one who just completely blew the T's last segment, so uh, we'll continue this conversation. To correct you, though, Keith, the 1980 squad was actually number 23, unless my eyes uh, were deceived me. On the list of teams, uh, top 25 teams to not win a national title, your 1980 Knowles checked in at number 23. Well, that'll teach me. Not only did I blow the lead, I don't even have the right number. So I'm not sure what kind of answer I expect to this question, Keith. I, obviously, I was 10 that year, so I don't have a memory of those two games. I know it was two one-point losses. I know you guys gave up, what, seven points in the fourth quarter all season in 1980 or something like that? None during the regular season and eight points in the bowl game. 
So I was one off. Were you guys a national championship team? I mean, you in your mind, were you deserving if you get one more, two more points against Oklahoma? Absolutely. And, and the reason I say that is not for any other reason than we should not have been playing in the Orange Bowl against Oklahoma to begin with. We should have been playing Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. And number one would have played number two. And if we'd have won that ball game, there would have been no question about it. The mere fact that we played Oklahoma because of the way the bowls were set up in that way, our listeners have heard me say this before, but uh, Georgia played Notre Dame in the Sugar Bowl that year. Notre Dame was ranked number nine or 10 or 11. You know, we were ranked number two and Oklahoma was ranked number four. And had we won the Oklahoma game, forget the Miami game, but had we won the Oklahoma game, I firmly believe the coaches would have voted us as the national champions. We would have had a split national championship. So, you know, if we, if we beat Miami, I'm of the opinion we should have been playing in the Sugar Bowl and had a chance to whip Herschel and the, and the Bulldogs. But even as it was, if we'd have been fortunate enough to get by J.C. Watts and company in that Orange Bowl, we might very well have had Florida State's first national championship. In answer to your question, were we good enough? Yes, we did lack we did lack a little bit of firepower on the offensive side. Uh, our offense would struggle at times, uh, but our defense was better than than their deficiencies, and that's why we had such a successful season. That's why I said I wasn't sure what answer I you know. There's only one answer I expected from you on that, and that was that was right on. So two other FSU teams were on that list: the 87 Knowles ranked 22nd, the 92 Knowles ranked 21st. Interestingly, the 97, 98, and 2000 teams weren't on that list. And, heck, you could probably add the 96 team and you could probably add the 94 team. You could add about every year of the dynasty into that that didn't win a title. Well, and that was interesting about it because the 96 team and the 98 team and the 2000 team, if either any of those three teams had won the game they played in and lost, they would have been the national champion. So, yeah, there were three, what, three Florida State teams on that list, and there could easily have been six, maybe even seven, if you wanted to stretch it. No question about that. Um, Anyway, it's good fodder. It's list season. So we had to talk about something. I got a little story. You saw that uh, B.J. Daniels is now head football coach at Lincoln here in town. Yep, yep. Do you recall my story about what happened when FSU played B.J. Daniels? Not in 2009. I don't want to talk about that game. We know what happened here at Doke. Talking 20 – I think it was 2012 when FSU returned the game in Tampa. Well, what I remember, and we'll let you tell the story, but what I remember is normally when we talk about athletic things on the field with you, it's because you caught – the ball that was overthrown to a wide open Florida state receiver that would have resulted in a touchdown, or you got rolled up on the sidelines when a running back got tackled out of bounds and you were too close, i.e. it's usually during the game when something happens. But as I recall this one, you, you were getting in the action before kickoff. Well, it's hard to recreate. I don't know if I can do this justice, but there was a several years there where I would go out to midfield for the coin toss. This was something Radio Network started doing. And 
it's now really gone away, truthfully, because TV producers and directors got tired of the radio guys screwing up their shot from the 50-yard line. Like, who's that random guy that's blocking my good shot of the ref? Oh, that was me. So we don't do that anymore so much. But anyway, generally, I'm kind of between whichever FSU captain was closest to the ref so that I can be there and hold the mic, listen to what's going on. Well, that, that day in Tampa and the visiting team, you know, the players shake hands. Nobody's paying attention to me. I'm just some random guy out there. The visiting team certainly could care less. Well, that game, I wasn't even looking at the captains, but BJ was one of the captains for USF. And I forget how tall he is, 6'2", 6'4", whatever he is, especially with pads on. He's a lot bigger than me and a lot fitter than me. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, peripheral vision, I just see this USF player that's coming over, and he's not going to shake hands with anybody for FSU. I thought he was coming to level me. I'm like, what did I do to this guy? And then I looked up and realized who it was, and he recognized me, I guess, from being in Tallahassee or whatever. And so he just came over to give me a fist bump, which was great relief to me because I, I thought I was fixing to get a whooping at midfield. <laughs> That's about what I thought was happening. And I don't even This really just in, Florida State announcer injured on the field, not on the sidelines. He must have 11. said something to the opposing team because he just got leveled at midfield. Anyway, I don't even really know B.J. Daniels. Obviously, I know of him. I'm sure we've met over the years. He would have no idea of that story, and and anybody who watched it live probably wouldn't have seen it the way I just described it. But at the moment, that's the way it felt as this hulking figure was approaching me at midfield. Well, you talk about the USF game, Tommy. Remember in the years before and when that series was announced, again, under different times, there were plenty of Florida State folks that said, we really shouldn't be playing USF. We have nothing to gain by playing the Bulls. If we beat them, we were expected to beat them. If we lose to them, and oh, oh, by the way, we did, then wow, that's a bad thing. So that goes back to our prior conversation about scheduling and who you put on the calendar. Some of that arguably may go away. If we go to regional scheduling, we may be playing UCF and USF on a regular basis. We may be playing Valdosta State. I hope not. I hope not. I hope this is a one-year aberration. But all of those things obviously need to be talked about and and at least discussed. And and they will be, although I feel like football is going to be the one sport since it drives the engine that would get a pass on continuing to play those games because TV is going to dictate it. And you're going to, to create fan interest and continue to drive revenue, you're going to have to schedule the, the marquee matchups. Now, I'm not saying USF is, but more to your point, people have, for that exact reason, people have not wanted to play Boise State ever since that contract was signed. And Florida State's played them once and lost. And if we get this season kicked off on time, they're going to play them again out in Boise this year. But then hopefully those games go away. I, I agree. I'd, I'd rather play a big name. There's something to – Something to gain, not everything to lose type game. But I agree. and um, It's a conversation that's got to happen. It, it, it's just it's the nature of where we find ourselves. And, again, you know, to look on the positive side, there's going to be some great ideas, great things, in my opinion, that come out of this discussion. We hate how we got here but I think we possibly are going to like several of the things that are outgrowth of having been there. We just won't like the way that it came about. I think that's true overall with the way businesses have had to adjust their practices. I mean, we're all tired of being in Zoom meetings all day, but the reality is two years from now, we'll use Zoom to 
have more of a personal meeting with somebody that's on the other side of the country that we normally would talk to on the phone. When, when was the last time you were in your office? Oh, I've been in there about twice since March. And here at the Earl Bacon Agency, and, and by the way, our, our Zoom meetings are now on the Earl Bacon Agency, uh, ensuring your future together. There's a Earl Bacon Zoom Agency line. hotline. Yeah. There's four, five, or six of us that have been coming in regularly to our building, but that leaves 40 people, plus or minus, that are working and continue to work remotely. And, um, you know, we have been, we've been successful in servicing the needs of our clients, and it, it may turn into something that we do on a little more regular basis. But I will tell you, just like, you know, you and I and the churches that we attend, you know, I hate, I hate the fellowship aspect of both work and worship and, and just as, as ugly and unattractive as you are, just not being able to see you. And, and that part of the human contact, you know, I'm, I'm anxious to get back to in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Keith, I'm, I'm proud of you. It's almost like you've used your downtime to script your lines so you could get me back with some zingers today. That's, that's twice today. So well, I've given thought to it. I, I spent a, a day at the beach on Monday, and I had nothing to do but think of you. I'm well aware you've rehearsed that line with Kathy several times, and it went over well. So congratulations. I'll be back to zinging you on a regular basis in person. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Keith, be safe. Tell the family hello. We'll do this again next week. Will do, Tommy. Appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And uh, next week, well, I won't let the cat out of the bag, but a uh, special guest coming up next week, as every week on Front Row Knowles. Tune in next Wednesday at 6, and we'll have that for you then. So long.